Hi, welcome to uh, Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am uh, somebody you have long suffered with, Ramya Swayam Prakash. Um, I teach at Grand Valley State University. And uh, today I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, um, and I guess the originator in my case, um, Dr. Camden Bird. How are you, Camden? I am great. It is Last week of classes here, vibes on campus are anticipatory of the end with a little mix of students dreading finals. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it's just that perfect end of the semester blend. And the sun might be peeking out as well. So it's... Yes. Yes. Spring. Spring is here. It's nice. Uh, Everything's flowering. It's starting to look very pretty. Uh, So we're we're here. We've got a podcast. We're making one. We... This week, we are meeting with uh, John Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Locke is, uh, has been active in the Midwestern History Association since the beginning, and he's written several books, such as The Lost Region, Towards the Revival of Midwestern History, and a book on Midwestern regionalism titled From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, a line from Fitzgerald. Um, and both of these were published by the University of Iowa Press. Uh, John earned his PhD in history from the University of Iowa and his law degree from the University of Minnesota. He grew up in South Dakota and went to college at South Dakota State University. He's currently the editor-in-chief of the journal Middle West Review, which was launched at the same time as the Midwestern History Association. So about nine years ago. Um, and his new book is titled The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, which is what we're reading today. Yes. So Camden, what did you make of the conversation and the book? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, John is no stranger to sort of the Midwestern History Association and studies and of course, yeah, started the podcast here. Um, yeah, for our conversation today, I mean, it's a good conversation to talk about both the content of the book uh, him, he, you know, as he points out early on that he's trying to write this sort of big history of the long 19th century of the American Midwest. And I think it really does, uh, you know, work to tackle a lot of content, and a lot of time. And what is actually a pretty like sort of like breezy read, and I don't mean that sort of like as a pejorative, like, it, it, you know, you, you start reading it and you just keep going. It, it's it's very well written in that regard. Um, I enjoyed uh, the conversation thinking about sort of the place of the Midwest in the minds of 19th century Americans, how the, uh, you know, settlers moving into the region thought of themselves in some sort of larger project. Yeah. And I thought sort of, you know, drawing upon, or I guess in conversation with um, a previous episode with Stephen Moore, um, I think with, with John, um, we ended up talking a lot about sort of the place of the Midwest, mm-hmm. like the Midwest as a place, the Midwest. The place of the Midwest and and thinking through what it meant to sort of live in the Midwest in the 19th century, uh, the ideas that that John argues make Midwest the Midwest sort of um, a forerunner uh, for a lot of revolutionary ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like you know, at least in the last few episodes, we've begun thinking through a little more about sort of the past and the future of the Midwest. Like, mm-hmm. you know, in sort of asking people what they mean by the Midwest, we've slowly begun thinking through what is this place of the Midwest? Like, what are its boundaries? But also in terms of ideas, mm-hmm. what ideas did it was this place conceived of with um, when settlement began? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, 
so it's it was an interesting conversation and i and the the piece on nostalgia that we ended up talking about a little bit i thought really resonated with you know the the conversation on home improvement that you had with <laughs> yes right um so yeah i think there's there's a lot to to sort of drop on in this uh, in this book and and the conversation that we had with john i think the you know it's it's obvious but all roads lead to tim allen and home improvement in the 90s uh no <laughs> um yeah it's a great conversation and, and i think you know i think we could do a, a, a larger episode for the future on sort of the place of nostalgia in sort of the the mindset of midwesterners but also broadly conceiving of a, a region in itself so mm-hmm. um i i think it was a good starter conversation and one that needs to keep going for sure. A um, few housekeeping items before we jump into this conversation. Of course, you don't need reminding, but everyone needs to just get that last minute reminder that the annual conference for the Midwestern History Association um, is being held in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, May 18th, May 19th. The schedule is up. Check it out. Say hi to Ramya uh, and myself. Indeed. And, you know, meet us for coffee after or beer because we are the first session so, <laughs> yes <laughs> yes um and then uh again thanks to steve leaf for the music for this podcast uh, he himself a resident of west michigan and grand rapids i haven't reached out to him maybe maybe help to show up to the conference he'll his maybe fan base can, will be there yeah maybe we can like get him to play at our panel or something <laughs> yeah well is there anything else um no, the Midwest is great. It should be a sweatshirt, but anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. All right. John, welcome to Heartland History. Or maybe I should say welcome back to Heartland History. Well, it's great to be here. I'm sorry for the long absence. Uh, every once in a while, I will think to myself, you know, we talked to that person on Heartland History and pull up the old episode and refresh my memory. So <laughs> it's uh, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me. And great to meet you, Ramya. Nice to meet you too, John. It's nice to have you here. Looking forward to our conversation. We're discussing your recent book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, recently published by the University of Oklahoma Press. But perhaps before jumping into the conversation, uh, you might be willing to give us a little bit of background about your path to this topic, which, you know, many of the listeners might know your sort of general, you know, interest in the Midwest. But I guess more specifically, like what led you to want to look at the history of the Midwest over the course of the long 19th century, as you say in the book? Well, it started uh, about 2010 uh, when I published this book uh, about East River, South Dakota. Now, South Dakota is a divided state. Basically, it's half Midwestern, half Plains West. And uh, I was active in the Western History Association in my early years, like I think a lot of people are, because that's kind of the path you follow if you want to study these parts of the country. There was no Midwestern History Association, so you uh, were sort of forced into that box. Um, And so I did a lot of things that were kind of related to West River, South Dakota, or the western uh, part of the state west of the Missouri River. 
Um, but I was uh, asked to teach this course, actually told to teach this course on the history of South Dakota and noticed there wasn't much on early Dakota history. So I um, wrote this book about what East River South Dakota was like and started just thinking more and more about how Midwestern it was and how all these people who settled there were moving in from Illinois and Minnesota and Ohio and Indiana and just thinking about what that meant, um, you know, as opposed to migration streams to the West. I mean, people who are moving out into some of these Western states were moving there from the South. And so that gives those states a, a different cast or a different cultural DNA, so to speak. And so I thought I'm going to explore more of this Midwestern history. And I just came to believe that there wasn't very much Midwestern history. It had basically collapsed as a field of study. I think it was active in the early 20th century, but by the time I started digging around, mm -hmm. there wasn't much left, a few remnants is all. And so I turned this thinking into this book I wrote called The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History to try and get people thinking about that. And we had some nice, uh, some good meetings about it and some conference panels. You know how things work in the historical profession and your, and your listeners do too. It's sort of a slow, accretive process that, you know, unfolds over many years and involves a lot of uh, conferences and short essays and longer articles and bowl sessions and bars. And, you know, pretty soon you, you begin to uh, make a little bit of progress, a little bit of headway into getting people thinking about the field. And it sort of took off from, uh, from there. And I should say, just to go back uh, to actually answer your question, Camden, <laughs> I kind of got off on a tangent. <laughs> no, there. you're your good. Question, your question was, how did we get to the good country? And several steps in between, but I started to think that, well, if we're going to have a revived field and have serious discussions about what should be in this field, what should be out, you need kind of a uh, a book, a central book that tries to tie everything together and advance an interpretation and overall um, theory of mm -hmm. the case. And so that's what I was trying to do in the good country to try and create um, a, I hate to use the word master narrative because that's a, that's a bad word these days, but a bigger picture narrative of the region. Um, so we can have a discussion about, is this an accurate portrayal? what's been left out, what needs to be modified. I mean, you have to have some basis for the discussion. And, you know, I actually was looking at reading an article about Southern history. I am working on a review essay about all this raft of new books coming out about the history of the American South. And I was reading something and somebody listed all these books about the history of the South. And I'm talking dozens of books that mm -hmm. attempt an overall history of the region. And, you know, we we don't have that. I mean, there was a book that came out in the 1940s by historian R. Carlisle Bewley in Indiana, which was a short treatment of the, well, not short lengthwise, but it was a treatment of a short span of time for the Northwest Territory. But again, we really didn't have that overarching book that would foster debate about the field. And 
you know, we, we travel in uh, circles with historians who study lots of other topics mm -hmm. in lots of other parts of the world, and they don't have time to dig down into the details of what's going on in the Midwest. They want, you know, a big picture treatment like, hey, tell me why this region matters. Tell me the significance of it. How does it fit into the overall pattern of American history? And, and that was kind of the goal with this. And it only came out in late November, you know, essentially came out in December. And we're recording this in April of uh, the following year, 2023. So, I mean, we're pretty early on in this yeah, process. Yes, yes. Um, there's been a few reviews that have come out in popular um, magazines and stuff. But in terms of like the profession starting to talk about it, I think that's, you know, that takes a year or two yeah. for historians to weigh in. And that's why I'm so eager to talk to people like you, because I'm sure you've been thinking about this a long time, too, because you've both been very active in the Midwestern History Association. And these are the kind of conversations mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to having. Yeah, and, and I think one of the, I guess it's not fashion, but um, one of the conversations going on um, in the profession at large has been, you know, there's the problem of presentism, uh, but there's always been this conversation about, you know, the, the, the history of sort of democracy and, you know, ideals. And one of the things you sort of, a very tantalizing idea you talk about in your book is, you know, you argue that the Northwest ordinance was democratic in its ideals and scope. And so I was wondering if you might want to explore that a little bit more here, because I found that idea really interesting and inviting. Yes. Uh, so to follow up on your point about presentism, just very briefly, there's a historian at University of Wisconsin-Madison who was or is president of the American Historical Association. He wrote this essay op-ed about, you know, don't get trapped in you know, present day concerns and have that shape how you dig into the past because, you know, it distorts what actually happened in the past. And, you know, that's, I think, been a long running discussion among historians. Um, that one sort of blew up for various reasons, but uh, it's an obvious valid point. Um, and yes, I argue in the book, in fact, that as far as I know, this uh, region of the United States was the most advanced democratically uh, place in the world at the time. And when I was thinking about this, when I was putting the final touches on the book, I'm like, well, I, I believe this is true, but I think I should provide some comparative context for this claim. And when I was thinking about how to structure the introduction, I just happened to be in a bookstore in Watertown, South Dakota and ran across an old history of uh, Russia. Um, and just, I bought it because I was going ice fishing and when they're not biting, <laughs> you have a lot of time to read. And I, I was just reading this book about how terrible Russia was in the 19th century. And then I did some other, read some other books about other places. And I just thought, you know, I need to emphasize this to people. Uh, and this is one of the things that's happened in the discipline in the last 20 years is this focus on transnational global mm -hmm. history and try to get people to think about how does the history you're doing fit into the global scheme of things. And so mm -hmm. I tied into that a little bit. Uh, there's that historian from uh, Australia, whose name I can't pronounce, who's done a lot of great work on this. And in fact, has dug into the early history of 
of these Midwestern historians from the early 20th century. His first name's Ian Tyrell or something like that. But oh, yeah. anyway, I, I thought that was an important step to take early on in the book. And it really helps to highlight the importance of the Northwest Ordinance, which said that basically we're going to promote education for everyone in the region. We're going to promote the free exercise of religion, which wasn't true in all the other states. Uh, we're going to abolish slavery in this region, again, which is an amazing step forward in 1787 when down in Philadelphia, they're writing a constitution, which was very progressive in many ways, but it also defended or upheld uh, the slave South and its institutions. And so in that sense, the Northwest Ordinance was much more progressive. It also had a very bold section on civil rights and habeas corpus and uh you know, things that were adopted before uh, the Federal Bill of Rights. So, uh, and, you know, that, those are great to put into a generic charter, but the question was, how would it work in practice? And the truth mm -hmm. is, it worked very well. Early on, uh, Ohio, the first state in the Midwest, uh, had great, robust elections with 75% turnout. And, um, a lot of people voting and universal manhood suffrage, um, you know, for, for white men. And there was this much more, much, this, there was a very robust debate about extending the franchise to African-Americans, which I was sort of surprised to see when I first dug into, uh, the early histories of these states. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, this is why people kept saying who are living in the Midwest, you know, this the we represent the freest institutions in the world and when you read it later on a cynical historian might say oh this is just puffery everyone says this but uh there's a lot of validity to it too yeah and and sort of building on that and i guess yeah i guess building on that um i want to sort of ask you what do you um no how might you define the midwest uh, what is it you you've talked a little about the states uh, the first state in the Midwest. Um, so how might we imagine the Midwest, I guess, is the question. And, you know, how did 19th century Midwesterners understand the Midwest? Well, the, the key boundary was created by uh, the Northwest Territory or this, this chunk of land that the young United States acquired from Great Britain. And they carved five states out of it. Um, and Ohio is the most important one, um, you know, with the Ohio River as the southern border, because south of there is uh, were slave states uh, and a very different uh, orientation economically. Um, the um, western boundary is one of my favorite topics because uh, this generates a lot of discussion and it's basically the 100th meridian to give away the story right away <laughs> or the 98th meridian some people say i mean but but right in there and if you imagine how the missouri river divides the dakotas that's the that's basically the dividing line i'm talking about and there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called the interior borderlands published by the Center for Western Studies that drills down and explains why the land to the east of the 100th meridian 
is, you know, relatively well watered and agricultural and farm country. And then when you get west of that line, you have more cowboys and mountains and short grass uh, ranching and Indian reservations and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's the dividing line on the western side. Um, on the north side, of course, there's the Canadian boundary, but that's not very, you know, that's kind of a political boundary. But, you know, things get a little bit different up north. When you get to the Upper Peninsula, et cetera, uh, things get, they turn to logging and forestry mm -hmm. and fishing and shipping and that sort of thing. That's a little bit different than the core Midwest. And if I can just give a shameless plug here for myself, uh, <laughs> we have a book coming out uh, in May. A uh, formal uh, launch will be at the Midwestern History Association Conference in Michigan called The North Country, uh, Essays on Northern Regional Identity in the Midwest or something like that from o University of Oklahoma Press, which is a very fun book. And really, as an aside, the cover of that book to me is very stunning, and it it shows the northern lights mm -hmm. over Lake Superior. And I don't know what it's been like in Michigan and Illinois, but the last couple of nights in South Dakota, the northern lights have been spectacular. And if you look at Twitter and Facebook, everyone's going out at midnight and 1 a.m. around here, finding a dark country road and taking <laughs> pictures of, of the northern lights. So that's, that's very fun. It is a gorgeous cover. So to... to to tack back onto Rami's question a little bit there. I'm curious, while well, you lay out the sort of the Northwest ordinance, I mean, you have some key features of what sort of this early Midwest region is and, and thinking about their identity to that place. I mean, did, was it conscious of those 19th century, um, you know, Midwesterners that this, what they, they, they feel that they were sort of entering into this new democratic space um, that was different than what they known either in Europe or, or in New England or the South or something like that. Definitely. Uh, and this comes very, this comes through, uh, very clearly in their writings, uh, where especially immigrants moving in from, uh, Germany or somewhere else, they contrast, uh, the freedoms they find in the Midwest versus, you know, the, monarchical uh, principalities they lived in in what would become Germany. And uh, this is also true of people that moved in from the East because, you know, we think today of Northeastern states as very open and progressive and democratic, et cetera. But, you know, until the late 19th century, Massachusetts and Connecticut were, you know, they were run by the old Puritan um uh, immigrants. It wasn't until late 19th century, all those Irishmen moved into Boston and kind of blew things up for the Puritans. And so until, I don't know, the 1840s or so in Massachusetts, uh, the Puritan church was a state supported church. You paid your taxes to keep the Puritan church going. Uh, so it was very clear uh, favoritism on the part of state government there. Uh, toward one denomination, whereas in the Midwest, uh, there was no state-supported church. There was a very wide-open uh, variety and diversity of religions. You had, of course, some Puritans moving in, or Congregationalists, I should say, mm -hmm. from New England. And then you have backcountry Irish and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists. And then the immigrants who are coming in, 
you know, half of them are Lutheran, half of them are Catholic uh, early on. And then you get a whole variety of newer religions toward the end of the 19th century. So there really is an amazing degree of diversity. The most diverse state in the country was Ohio mm -hmm. in the mid 19th century. Um, there was a there's a famous theorist, political theorist by the name of Horace Callan, who lived in Wisconsin for a while. And he looked around and he said, wow, this is an extremely diverse place. I'm, I'm sort of shocked. And he developed this theory of American democratic pluralism from his time in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a new book out about him really connecting him to his experience in the Midwest. University Press of Kansas released it. And I think it's called something like Horace Callan of the Heartland or something. But it's a very good book. I recommend it to everybody, but he boils this down uh, very well. One of the other pieces that I was struck by um, in, in sort of, you're, you're sort of outlining this, this democratic spirit, right? That's sort of moving through the Midwest and you, you bring up, you know, all these different institutions that these immigrant groups are sort of creating in those spaces that you see as sort of like, you know, advancing literacy, but also advancing democratic sort of spirit and ideals. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what those institutions might be and how those also help to sort of grow and develop this, this sort of Midwestern unique identity that you identify early in the book. Well, so these immigrants come in, these settlers come in, and the first thing they do is uh, usually set up some Christian churches, uh, and then they set up some schools, and then they set up uh, a kind of main street with basic uh, merchant houses and what we would call grocery stores, and, you know, hardware stores and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, and then they would start to form civic associations of various kind. And some of these were unique to particular towns and some of them were borrowed uh, or were, the, were larger associations. So the Masonic lodges uh, were very common. Um, there were a whole host of smaller organizations like Elks Clubs and Knights mm -hmm. of Pythias, etc. And then as time went on, uh, given historical events, new civic uh, clubs or associations formed, especially in the Midwest. One especially important one was the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, mm -hmm. which was um, led by Union veterans of the Civil War who became the civic leaders of these towns and became the mayors and sometimes would advance up the political system and become senators and governors. Um, in addition to those institutions, there were things like the Lyceum Circuit. A lot of towns had lyceums where a person would come through, tra traveling lecturers. Um, and a great example of this, since you're in Illinois, Camden, um, the famous uh, Springfield, Illinois Lyceum, uh, Abraham Lincoln, a very young lawyer on the make, trying to prove himself and move up the ladder, gave a famous speech at the Springfield Young Men's Lyceum in 1838, mm -hmm. uh, which everyone should read. It's an amazing speech, still very applicable to all of our lives. Um, in addition to the Lyceums, uh, there's the Chautauqua Circuit. Mm -hmm. um, someone put on Twitter the other day a picture of the Chautauqua that was on Lake Madison near my hometown of Madison, South Dakota. 
And I had not seen this picture before, but it was an amazing building. It looked like a little castle built out on this lake. And uh, they would have a Chautauqua week where people would come, a lot of prominent speakers. There would be entertainment and, you know, not fluffy stuff. People would come and give lectures about uh, Tacitus and the history of Rome and uh, uh, readings from Edward Gibbon and uh, super interesting stuff. Uh, and, you know, if you had a more prominent uh, Chautauqua, you know, people like William Jennings Bryant would come through. Mm -hmm. um, and this was social life back then. Uh, this is what people did in addition to going church to church and working hard. Um, you know, it, I try to explain this sometimes to my children who are who are digital natives. You know, all they do is look at their phones and they're so connected to the whole world. And, you know. It was a different form of life then and uh, a different pace. And and there was a real strong emphasis on reading and a reading culture and a book culture. Uh, major publishing houses in Indianapolis and Chicago during the 19th century. And uh, one of the fun um, aspects of this book is reading about towns setting up libraries. Mm -hmm. uh, often these libraries uh, were quickly built and the whole process was led by Midwestern women who were active in their own civic clubs. Um, so, I mean, this was uh, social life in the 19th century Midwest. Yeah, I think, I mean, as I was reading through your book too, those statistics really stood out to me of sort of like looking at literacy rates comparatively, but also, yeah, the, just the abundance of literary societies in, in small towns, which was just fascinating to sort of sit, up, sit with those numbers a little bit uh, and, and thinking about that. Well, can I provide our listeners one of those stats, and I'm not sure I'm citing it exactly 100% uh, correct here, but by the end of the 19th century, these places like Iowa and Kansas and the Dakotas, et cetera, Minnesota, you know, 95% of people were literate, which is pretty amazing by world standards, by any standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the American South, for example, um, the illiteracy rates are extremely high, even into the 20th century. One thing that I found, and, and maybe we'll get to this separately, but, you know, there was a there was a strong effort to extend K-12 education and college education to African-Americans in the Midwest. And so by the mid 19th century, there are more African-Americans being educated in the American Midwest than uh, white Americans in the South. I mean, these are, this, I think, speaks to the dedication to literacy and schools and colleges. Again, I, I did not go into this project really expecting this. I mean, I had a general sense that there would be some regional divergence or contrast, but not to this degree. And it's, it really makes, should make people think about, oh, well, this kind of changes how we think about 19th century America. And maybe, you know, we need to change our focus a little bit and explain how American regions were different. Mm -hmm. One thing, and this is somewhat a field, I'll keep it short, but one thing to keep in mind, Frederick Jackson Turner, who is a product of Wisconsin and, you know, is, is not popular in some history circles for his work on the frontier, but, Turner, that was just a early paper he did in the 1890s. Most of his work was trying to describe for people 
the regional variation in the United States and how sections were different. And again, uh, go back to Ramya's point. Sometimes this is hard uh, for people to envision now because we live in a digital culture with the internet after 70 mm-hmm. years of mass culture, making our country so blended and confusing and amorphous that it's hard to tease out regional distinctions. But I'm talking about the 19th century mm-hmm. when the country really still was a country of regions, as as Turner used to emphasize. And I was just going to say that, you know, speaking of regions, um, for me, as a as as a historian of the Midwest and an environmental historian, I've long been intrigued by sort of environmental activism, uh, which has a long history in the Midwest. Um, so I was wondering if you could sort of speak a little uh, about sort of how environmental movements have helped realize the democratic ideas and bases of the Midwest. Well, I one of the things that's uh, interesting about the Midwest is uh, how happy some of these settlers were to be there because it was such a lush region of the world to be. Mm-hmm. Tons of trees, tall grass, tons of lakes, beautiful mm-hmm. Great Lakes, beautiful rivers. I mean, settling this region of the country uh was made possible by all these amazing rivers that people could go up and down. And, and of mm-hmm. course, the Great Lakes are central to all of that, as you know, Ramya. Um, but so this was often commented upon. And, you know, people had a bond with nature. They would also, they would often go hunting and fishing and bring home some ducks and geese for dinner. I mean, this is a big part of their life. Um and then, you know, as industrialization kind of makes its uh, presence felt in the, I don't know, mid to late 19th century, some Midwestern voices begin to say, hey, we have to be careful here because uh, we're despoiling parts of this uh, beautiful environment. Uh, we can't just be dumping things randomly into rivers. And people don't always make this connection, but John Muir was from Wisconsin. Um, Aldo Leopold was from Iowa. Um, and this, uh, I used to go to this lake very frequently in South Dakota. And I recently, or I found out a couple of years ago that Paul Arrington, who doesn't have the, uh, he's not as well known as Aldo Leopold, but he was a close associate of Aldo Leopold and is very much in the same vein. And probably because Leopold was there in Madison and Wisconsin to have a bigger platform, he's probably better known. But Paul Arrington was one of these leading conservationists early on, too. And uh, he was he's from a little town not too far from where I go fishing. And uh, he went to South Dakota State University and studied wildlife, and biology, et cetera. And so there's a whole string of these kind of people. Um, and there's a book. Um, published by Christian Knoller, who teaches English at Purdue. Um, and it's sort of oddly published by University of Nevada, Nevada Press, but it's all about these early conservationists and this early environmental movement in the Midwest. And, um, you know, some of these people would end up moving out West and having a major influence on the 
environmental movements or efforts in the West, like John Muir, for example, would be a good example of that. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, this is a major component of, uh, of civic life here. It doesn't take on the form that it would today. Um, these were more, these were people that were more, I think, into uh, small scale reforms and conservation efforts and um, quite successful in many cases, I would say. This was, I mean, this was a, uh, a thread of your argument that I sort of latched onto and I was really interested in sort of exploring the, the sort of democratic impulse that you talk about uh, that's sort of like uniquely Midwestern, right? And it's and, and you argue that's the basis for many of the reform movements of the late 19th century, right? It, probably at this time when industrial you know, capitalism is really starting to have its way with the area. But you argue that many reform efforts that took place in the region, such as women's suffrage or temperance or anti-monopoly reforms or farm reforms are sort of manifestations of, as you say, democratic practices and energies that had taken hold in the Midwest. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, what do these reform movements tell us about the groups that champion them and what about them are sort of uniquely Midwestern? Well, in the case of, uh, let's take women, for example. I mean, uh, women were, um, you know, people think of women's suffrage in 1920 passing and this being this big landmark watershed event in the 20th century. But there's a lot of things that proceed that uh, involving uh, women uh, becoming active in civic clubs, number one. And and before they were active in civic clubs, many of the leaders of these clubs went to colleges in the Midwest. As early as the 1830s, these Midwestern colleges are becoming co-educational. Um, and the Midwest led the nation on this front um, by far. Mm -hmm. uh, there mm -hmm. were very few in the Northeast or the South that were co educational. And so these women graduate from these colleges and, you know, some of them uh, become active in these clubs. Some of them become professionals. I think there were about, about the time right after the civil war, there were 75 or so uh, medical doctors who are women in Ohio. And by the end of the uh, 19th century, there's 500 or so. I mean, that's pretty stunning number. I didn't know mm -hmm, that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. one state. And so, um, and, and also women prior to getting the vote in national elections, presidential elections, they are extended the right to vote in local elections, municipal elections, county elections, school board elections. Some states give them the right to vote in presidential elections you know, long before the national uh, constitutional amendment passes. And that makes women uh, more active in the political sphere. And, you know, so they take on causes. Now, those causes can be small scale causes like building a library in their town or beautifying a park, or they can be larger scale efforts like prohibition and uh, stopping uh, what they see as men's wasteful habits, spending time in a saloon. You know, I think speaking to Ramya's point about presentism, I think in, you know, in these days, we often kind of poke fun at that and laugh at that and mock that and condescend to people in the past. But, you know, I've sort of rethought this lately a little bit. I mean, um, if you, I mean, what, 
what an amazing bit of activism to shut down the alcohol market that you see is poisoning the minds of the men in the town and making the town unproductive and and uh, betraying Christian principles. And, uh, you know, I, I've started to rethink that a little bit. A friend of mine, I lost a friend of mine to alcohol recently. And I was like, you know, this we need to take these people seriously on their own terms and um, understand their mission better uh, back there. And that, you know, that was a major reform effort. Um, but it's important for people to understand the regional angle on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this came home to me by reading uh, a book by Kenneth Wheeler um, that came out about the old Northwest and higher education, where he really drives his point home. It's extremely well done. And, uh, in another bit of self-promotion, uh, the journal I edit middle West review, we had a cover story by a former president of the Midwestern history association, Sarah Eggie, in which she talks about the Midwest as being sort of the tip of the spear when it comes to suffrage efforts. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, we also had a, cover story about uh, by Kristen Maple Bloomberg of Hamlin University in in, uh, Minnesota. She did a cover story about how co-education took off in the Midwest. And, you know, these small Christian colleges in the Midwest were was where it started. Uh, I think Ohio University was allowing uh, women students in the 1830s or so, but then these new public schools that we all are very familiar with that become big institutions now, like University of Iowa was letting uh, uh, women uh, matriculate in the 1860s, and very soon after, the usual Big Ten schools uh, were doing this when other places mm-hmm. weren't. And this also extends to uh, the legal profession. Uh, women were being trained as lawyers in law schools in the Midwest in the 1860s and 1870s. When did Harvard allow women into the law school? 1950s. I mean, this is a big regional difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know there's a kind of bias toward the Northeast in our, uh, in our historical profession. So it's not shocking. This has not come up more often or been talked about more often. So uh, because these women were involved in the public sphere, it was no shocking thing for them to be involved. That automatically led them into many reform efforts. No, sorry. Yeah, it's a big question. No, but I think it, it does get at some of the, I was sort of attaching this 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 sort of democratic spirit that you're outlining to like the activism and the reform movements of, yeah, that turn of the century, which seems like sort of an interesting, yeah, thought to sit with. Um, you note something in the conclusion of your book that I, I, it, it spoke to a feeling I've had about some of the directions of Midwestern history scholarship. So maybe my last question is a a reflection on the past and future of Midwestern studies, which is, you know, we can pick this up at the, uh, the Midwestern history conference here, just shortly after this, this episode release, um, In particular, I want to talk about or discuss the place of nostalgia. Uh, You write uh, that too many view the Midwest as default, backwards, unintelligent, illiterate, et cetera, et cetera. Right. These are the common stereotypes associated with what is often called the flyover country. In fact, I think our um, podcast with Stephen Moore did a good job of also sort of exploring that that trope. Um, 
But then you go on to write that, um, quote, evidence shows that many Midwesterners and their observers were not blinded by myth, but in fact had views that were rooted in reality and uh, the lived experience of millions in the region. Those who looked fondly on the Midwest were not guilty of false nostalgia or of believing in something imaginary or disconnected from truth. Instead, they embraced a genuine nostalgia, a love of home that seemed increasingly distant and endured feelings of sickness about what had been lost or soul nausea, what results when the things we hold dearest are trampled or desecrated. Rami and I like really stewed on this idea, and I think it relates a little bit to our conversation, as I said, with Stephen Moore. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think the place of nostalgia might be in Midwestern studies, or more broadly, you said you were working on a piece on sort of Southern regionalism. What was the place of nostalgia in regionalist studies more broadly? Well, I remember when I was working on my dissertation many, many moons ago, and uh, this was about um, farm policy, very sexy topic, <laughs> farm policy in the decades after World War II, um, and it was designed to be an economic history. And uh, I was studying the prices of hogs and corn and uh, really a kind of bloodless uh, interpretation of the American past. Mm -hmm. And I, as I was doing the research for that book uh, or for that dissertation that became a book, I um, was working in the uh, private papers of prominent uh, Midwestern senators and congressmen, et cetera, trying to sort of fill in the blanks about various bills that passed related to farm policy, et cetera. And I would run across, now this is the era when people wrote letters. This is not the age of email and texting, et cetera. This is when people would write letters. And if you wrote a letter, if you took the time to use a piece of paper, which is not in great supply and, you know, times were tough, uh, it meant something. So I was reading these letters from people on little farms, 160 mm -hmm. acre farms scattered around the Midwest to their senator. And they were making this plea about doing something about farm prices so they could survive and stay on the farm and keep this rural culture that they were a part of going and they were making social arguments. They weren't talking about, you know, the brass tacks of economics. Mm -hmm. They were saying that we have a lovely rural neighborhood and small town here and it's being destroyed by these market factors that are completely disrupting these communities. And it just, and I, I kind of changed direction with the dissertation a little bit hmm. and made it more of a socio-political economic uh, take on events because this feeling of cultural loss is very powerful and it's real and it's something people experienced mm -hmm. and it led them to join farm protests and try to pass a corporate farming laws, et cetera, to keep that old world going. They did that because they thought that old world was good and virtuous and decent and communal. They didn't do it because they thought that world was backward and oppressive and something to be escaped. Mm -hmm. And it just brought home to me uh, in a very real way 
why people have these feelings of nostalgia. Now, my criticism of some uh, cultural commentators when they talk about nostalgia is they, and this goes back to Richard Hofstetter and many of the New York intellectuals of the 50s and 60s, they're very dismissive of this. They think this is all fake. People are believing in a fantasy from the past, something that wasn't real. And, um, you know, I we can agree that it's going to be very hard to recreate or get back to the agrarian world of the 19th century. I completely concede that. But we don't have to say that it wasn't real. I mean, it was real to these people. And if it wasn't real, they wouldn't have fought so hard to keep it. And so... This is my problem with some of the critics who talk about nostalgia. They assume uh, what people are recalling is inaccurate, uh, is fake. And uh, I, I just want to flag the fact that um, in many cases, uh, that is not true. Now, I'm sure there are cases of nostalgia where people are remembering something that's not true. I mean, I... I'm sure you can cite uh, many examples of that. But I also want to highlight the possibility mm -hmm. of the alternative, too. You know, this term nostalgia, it came from Switzerland in the 1700s. And what the original meaning is, um, these Swiss soldiers signed up to be soldiers of fortune, essentially, and fight in other armies. And they would be signed up to join the German army or whatever, and they would be dispatched to these far-flung outposts, and they missed home. They missed where they came from in the Swiss Alps. They missed their little villages, and it actually made them physically sick. And finally, doctors came up with a term or a diagnosis for this. It's a kind of homesickness, uh, a person being so connected from a place that they love that it um, it affects them mm -hmm. mentally and physically, et cetera. Uh, so it was, it was originally diagnosed as a real medical condition. Uh, and I don't think that's how most people remember it or that's not how they treat it. But anyway, what is its role in Midwestern studies? Well, I think uh, the key thing would be to recognize that when some people are writing about uh, the loss of the old uh, small town, rural Midwest, um, those feelings can be real, not mm -hmm. always, uh, but they can be. And so I think we should treat nostalgia as a real and serious and palpable social force. That would mm -hmm. be my argument. I, I mean, I, I, I agree in the sense of this, this say that I think people who demonstrate nostalgia is, I, I mean, like, I just want to study. I want to jump in at the point that someone wants to talk about it because it does demonstrate sort of like an inherent tension in the present that is leading a sort of longing or at least sort of a, even if it is true or not true, I mean, like something is being missed or lost uh, that is worth understanding that, that person's position to that phenomenon. Well, think about you're both interested in environmental history and you yeah. asked me about environmental activism. I think nostalgia is an extremely powerful force in environmental writing. Think about Aldo Leopold writing about when he used to go duck hunting mm -hmm, down mm -hmm, on the mm -hmm. banks of the Mississippi River outside of his little town in Iowa. I mean, that's nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And what is he nostalgic for? A time when mm -hmm. the land had not been affected by so much uh, human habitation or human, um, I don't know, 
reorganization of the mm -hmm. river mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. your pollution and that sort of thing. Well, that's real nostalgia. Um, so, you know, obviously we all need to mm -hmm. be on alert against fake nostalgia or or someone creating a mythic or fake past that can appeal to people in the present and cause them to do certain things politically. But that's not what I'm talking about mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I mean, context and the details are very important. Yeah. Yeah. Context and details are very important. Uh, and, and this conversation has been incredible and so enlightening. So, um, you know, we were wondering if you want, you might want to share with us what you're working on next. Well, um, I feel like the, you know, how armies get way ahead of their supply lines and they have to kind of wait and catch up, let, let all these supplies catch up. I kind of feel like I'm in that mode a little bit. Um, I have, uh, I was asked to edit the Oxford history of the American Midwest and that involves 40 chapters of various, um, angles on Midwestern history. It's a huge project and we need to get that done. And it's not all, it's not all my fault. Oxford has been slow. They've had some reorg, <laughs> they've had some organizational challenges, et cetera. We don't need to get into, but that needs to get done. And, um, I've, you asked me about the boundaries of the Midwest. Well, I was involved in this book about the Western boundary. And we have this book coming out about the northern boundary of the Midwest. Uh, and myself and Gleaves Whitney are working on a project with the University Press about the eastern boundary of the Midwest. So that mm -hmm. area essentially of southeastern Ohio, where Appalachia turns into the more traditional Midwest and what that borderland is. And, you know, west of the Appalachians, you know, there's a there's a there's a seam there that runs down that part of the country they used to be very real to a lot of people probably you know less real today because of the digital age we live in and mass culture etc um so that's that's one of the projects and then um there will be a 10-year celebration next year so 2014 of the 10-year anniversary of the creation of the Midwestern History Association and the journal Middle West Review. And for that, uh, we hope to have a volume out about uh, the state of the field uh, connected to this 10-year anniversary. Uh, Camden has written a chapter for that. And uh, my fingers are crossed that we meet all of our um, deadlines and we get this out on the 10 year anniversary. Um, in addition to that, there will be a 10 year anniversary issue of Middle West Review in which we, we ask many uh, people in the field, younger people, veteran scholars, et cetera, to uh, give us their thoughts on this 10 year anniversary. So that those sorts of things are keeping me occupied and, <laughs> and I am looking forward to seeing Many of the listeners for this podcast, I would guess, at the mid-May Midwestern History Association Conference in Grand Rapids, where Rame, you are. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this podcast will be out before that conference. So if you're listening to this and you don't know about it, look <laughs> yep. it up. It's a free conference. You can just walk in and attend. It's beautiful, beautiful place. Grand Rapids in the spring is amazing. Uh, Michigan is beautiful. So, and if you want to get involved in this effort 
in this movement, maybe too strong a word, but <laughs> I mean, we need more people. We need mm -hmm, more boots mm -hmm. on the ground. We need more professors. We need just writers, anybody uh, to join the cause. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people that have retired now and they're looking for projects. I mean, please join the cause. I mean, we're, you don't have to learn Greek or Latin to join this uh, effort. Uh, you can jump right in. Uh, and you're probably living in the Midwest anyway, if you're listening to this. So mm -hmm. you don't have to go far to begin your studies. I, I like the, the idea of sort of ending the pitch on you don't have to learn Greek or Latin. I think that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, John, this, is, this has been great. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your work and Midwestern studies more broadly. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. I look forward to seeing you in Michigan. Yes, we'll see you there. Yes. Yeah, All right. looking forward Bye. to it. Bye.